0: This is episode number 395 with the author of Storytelling with Data, Cole nsbammer Naflik. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Data Science Podcast. Everybody, super excited to have you back here on the show. In today's episode, we've got a very exciting guest, none other but the author of the famous book, Storytelling with Data, Cole Nisbaumer Naflik. So in case you haven't heard of Cole before, Cole is the author of one of the most popular books on data visualization. It's called Storytelling with Data. It is a number one bestseller on Amazon. It's got over 700 ratings and it is the most recommended book on this podcast. So finally, we had Cole on the show and I literally just got off the Zoom call with her. In today's uh, podcast you will hear about quite a lot of things first of all you'll hear about cole's story and how she worked at google and how she started her own business storytelling with data and what she does at present then we talked about the top 3 tips for data visualizations these are tips that you can already take away today and start applying in your visualizations also you will learn why data visualization is actually so important in fact it's actually more important than the data modeling side of things and why you should be an expert at it if you want to be successful in data science. Uh, Also, we'll talk about why it's important to have an opinion on the visualizations that you're creating, how to voice that opinion in your visualizations. We'll talk about storytelling with data. In fact, this is the first podcast on the show where we dive deeply into storytelling. We talk about things like a narrative arc, and how that approach is different to what we see typically in business, which is a linear style presentation, and how to shift from a linear presentation to a narrative arc and what are the steps involved with that. You'll hear about the number of steps in a story. Cole will share an amazing strategy for uh, building up complex visualizations, if they have to be complex, and then we'll have a lightning round of questions with the questions that our audience submitted on LinkedIn. So a very cool podcast coming up. Data visualization is an extremely important part of data science. And whom else better to learn from than Cole Nussbaum and Naflik? Probably nobody. So without further ado, I bring to you the author of Storytelling with Data Cole Nussbaum and Naflik. Welcome everybody back to the Super Desense Podcast. Super excited to have you back here on the show. Today we've got a very special guest, Cole Ms. naflik calling in from Wisconsin. Cole, how are you?
1: I'm great, Karila. How are you doing?
0: Awesome. So excited to have you on the show. Big time fan. Got both your books. If anyone's watching the video, right here, both of them. This is so cool. Um, tell us, so Wisconsin, how long have you been in Wisconsin for?
1: Yeah, you know, it's gone by fast. We've been here just about two years now. I'm a Bay Area transplant. My husband mm-hmm. grew up in this area and his side of the family's here. So we, we were ready to get out of San Francisco and we've got three little kids and wanted a little more space and to get closer to family. And so
0: nice. uh, it's
1: been a, a good transition.
0: Nice. Fantastic. And um, uh, yeah, I was um, watching one of your talks. So back, uh, it, is it at, uh, in California where you worked at Google? Yes, yeah, in yeah. And uh, but since then now you have your uh, own website, your own business, so I guess it's all virtual. Is that how it works?
1: Uh, today it is all virtual. Uh, historically, that was not the case. So, uh, my company is called Storytelling with Data, and we spend our time helping people and organizations make graphs that make sense. Mm-hmm. And so, this primarily takes the form of workshops where we'd go into an organization, spend half a day or a day with a team. Really covering foundational principles for both showing your data, but then also communicating to others with that data and thinking about how you weave data into a narrative, into a story that helps drive action. Mm -hmm. So, historically, we would go to organizations mainly and do that, though uh, we've shifted to the virtual world that many of us are uh, spending our time in these days. And so, we've brought what has historically been in person interactions into the online environment. So again, doing workshops for organizations and then also for individuals
0: who want to hone their skills. Okay. And um, how's that been going for you for transitioning into virtual?
1: It's actually been going really well. And I, I historically was anti-virtual. I have this feeling that there's so much gained from the in-person interactions and from being able to be there and physically move around a room and see people's faces to know know, whether folks are getting it or if we should pause and go more into detail. Uh, And so I've been delighted by how well virtual environment works for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we've done is we've tried to be really creative in how we're structuring that in terms of you know, how do you let people interact? How do you get people working on things directly? And we've, we've learned a lot from the process and some surprising things. So for example, we get a lot more interaction from people who would consider themselves introverts, who maybe wouldn't have spoken up in a group setting in the same way. Um, and it, virtual scales a lot better. So if I'm presenting and I'm talking at the camera to the audience, every person feels like you're talking to them. So it mm-hmm. actually, and this surprised me, but it can feel like a more intimate learning environment than being physically there because you, you simply can't do that in a room with 30 people. Mm. And so there's been some good surprises and yeah, it's been fun to, uh, you know, cause we haven't, we haven't been in this mode of creating things new and starting from scratch on some things. And so it's given me and the team opportunities to try things out and test things out and iterate very quickly and learn from what we're doing in ways that I think has been energizing.
0: That's so cool. Um, Absolutely agree with the notion that uh, presenting virtually, uh, I was also presenting a few months back and I had to think about this, that person watching the screen is like one person or maybe like two, if it's like a, you know, a colleague or a friend or a family member, but that's it. It's like, it's very different. You don't have that audience effect. So you, even the words you use, it's not like every, uh, welcome everybody. It's like, welcome you, you know, individually. Yes. So yeah, that's so cool. Uh, how do you get into this space? Uh, how did you get into data storytelling? It's like such an interesting area to be in.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. So I, I studied, my undergrad is in applied mathematics. So mm-hmm. I, I always enjoyed the, the puzzle piece of math and the logic and making things fit together in ways that made sense. And then out of university, my first job was in banking, in mm-hmm. credit risk management, mm-hmm. uh, building statistical forecast models to predict you know, when people weren't going to pay or how much they would default so that we could set our reserve levels. And I think that for me is where where the seeds of this all started, Uh, because I would spend a lot of time designing my graphs, and so I did uh, quite a lot of presenting to senior management, and I would spend time on the details of the graphs, and you know things like color. And at that point, I was just trying to make things look nice, right, without knowing really anything about the underlying principles. But the reinforcement that I got early on through doing that was I recognized that people were paying more attention to my work as a result. So it reinforced this wanting to spend time on the visual, on the aesthetics, on the communication piece, which was something that my colleagues didn't typically spend as much time on. Um, Went to business school while I was in the banking world. And then the subprime crisis happened. Banking was not uh, a fantastic place to be in. Uh, and so I thought, well, I, I You didn't go. cause
0: the subprime crisis, did you? Uh,
1: I did not cause <laughs> it. <laughs> no, actually, in credit risk, we're, we were the ones that were saying, whoa, 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 you know, we've <laughs> not been in this territory before. We can model things, but you can only model when you've got the right sort of history to model off of. And you know, we were doing new things with no documentation and all this crazy stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. But... The salespeople and the volume of money coming in uh, made that a hard fight to fight until everything crashed, right? And then you realize, like, ah, that's what they were saying ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I uh, wanted to get out of banking. And so did some self-assessment at that point to say, what skills do I have that I want to be using on a daily basis? Uh, you know, what sort of company do I want to be at? Where do I want to be? What skills do I want to develop? And from there, ended up at Google on the hmm. people analytics team, which is it's an analytics Hold team. Hold on, sorry,
0: I, I yeah. got to interrupt here. Yeah. That, that is so easy to say. I ended up at Google. Google has a seven-stage interview process. <laughs> How did you end up at Google?
1: Uh, I submitted my resume, my application online. So I'd been looking at different jobs and you know, I was looking at everything from quantitative marketing sort of roles. And then I, just, I came across this description for people analytics. I thought oh. that sounds really strange. Or analytics mm-hmm. on people, that could mm-hmm. actually be sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. And and it turns out the same sort of stuff I was doing in banking applies in this totally different sphere, right? Because if you think about it, modeling attrition, right, someone to leave the organization is actually very similar behind the scenes to modeling when someone's not going to pay your loan. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, it got my brain going in that direction. And then, yeah, I I mean, I was very lucky in terms of millions of, I forget what the numbers are, but it's crazy the number of applicants that Google got at that point, and I'm sure that number's increased now. Um, That somebody picked my resume out and said, let's talk to her. And so I had the phone screen and the in-persons and all that jazz. um, but actually went pretty quickly through the process. And yeah, a couple months after applying was moving to California and getting used to like biking around Mountain View and had this dream job, right? Because it was when I started was right as the people analytics team was formed. So prior to that, there'd been a couple analysts in compensation, a couple analysts in benefits. And so they had hired Prasad Seti, uh, who was my boss, to bring that together, run the analytics organization within people operations or human resources. And yeah, so we were looking, every data we looked at at the beginning was data that nobody had really looked at before, which was a really exciting time to be learning about people through the data and what we could do with that information. Mm.
0: Are you able to share some insights about uh, what the objectives you what objectives you had on a day-to-day basis what what how are you, you are helping Google with their people data?
1: Yeah, it really ran the gamut, right? So like any organization, when you're first starting to get your hands around data, it starts by figuring out, well, what do we have? What can we learn from what we already have at our fingertips? Where do we collect more data? So Mm -hmm. at Google, we would do a massive employee survey every year, uh, questions about how you feel about your manager or the work environment and different things that we would be able to use to... change directions or build strategy around how people were um, what's the right word? Like I think Google was interesting because there is such value placed on people Mm. and the, there was good recognition, you know, from the founders and all the way down that it's the people, it's the brains that make all of the great products. And so Mm. by doing things to keep them happy and wanting to be at work and feeling supported by their managers and all these little things that add together to make up this fantastic work environment where it doesn't feel like you're working because you're working on cool stuff and it's sort of fabricated so that you never want to leave, mm-hmm. <laughs> which shifted over time, right? As the employee population aged and you know, started getting married and having kids and all that sort of stuff. So I know things have changed since then, but um, yeah, it was a neat time to be there for sure. And also had the opportunity while I was there because I had still paid a lot of attention to how I was showing data. Mm -hmm. And at one point we were building out an internal training program and Mm -hmm. people building it came to me and said, hey, you know, data visualization, you you like this space. Can you build us some courses focusing Mm -hmm. on this? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that'd be fantastic. And so Mm -hmm. it gave me an opportunity to pause and do some research. This was like Mm 2009-ish Um, you know, find Stephen Few's books and Edward Tufte's books, uh, which were like the main things out there at that point. One of the things that I think has changed dramatically you know, in the decade plus since then is just access to information. There's so much more, so much more readily available now mm-hmm. in this space than there used to be. Uh, but so developed some courses on how to show data effectively uh, initially for this training program, and then we ended up having broader interest. So we rolled them out across all of Google and I got to travel around offices in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, and teach people what i 'd learn, which was super exciting. Uh, And then started getting inquiries from outside of the company saying, Hey, we've heard you do this. Can you come do this for us too? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so eventually decided it was time to uh, take, take this show on the road, if you will. And Mm -hmm. recognizing that these are not just skills needed by Google, right? These are Mm -hmm. skills that anyone can use to have greater impact when it comes to how they communicate their technical work.
0: Mm. And that's very admirable. I think from your LinkedIn, I saw that you stayed at Google for quite a while. It was like five or five or seven years, something like that. I was there,
1: let's see, from 2007 to 2013. So yeah, mm. six years.
0: Six years. And yeah. clearly it shows that you were enjoying what you're doing. And, but, but then like, to take that uh, jump and, and jump into the uncertainty and go like, oh, okay, the world deserves to know about these techniques and start uh, this business and help starting a business it it seems you know to outsiders that it's easy (laughs) oh it's much easier to keep your amazing job at google than to do this so hats off to you for that and thank you because like your work has impacted me and i know lots your book as i mentioned before podcast is the most quoted book on this podcast so uh speaking of the book uh, at what point in time did you decide to write the book Oh by the way for those who don't know it's called storytelling with data and there's a second one storytelling with data let's practice totally totally love it we'll talk about it in a second when did you decide to write it
1: okay so I had been teaching workshops, so left Google, had been teaching workshops at different organizations and learning a ton, right? Because before going into any organization, I would collect examples ahead of time to get an understanding of how the group was communicating with data currently. We'd use them as the basis for some of the hands on exercises that we would go through. And it was always very interesting to note that it's sort of irrespective of industry or the part of the organization everyone struggles with the same sort of things. And there are common, e- relatively easy things that we can do differently in ways that just enable us to get our information across quicker and with fewer misunderstandings and to get people to really focus on the the so what, right? Instead of like going down the death spiral of wanting more data, more data, more data. Um, and so, that was an interesting recognition. As I started doing more work with more companies across more industries, is just the pervasiveness uh, with which people could apply these lessons. And so it was after being a couple of years into doing it on my own that I realized I wanted to codify the lessons in a book. My husband will say, "Well, I had the idea for a book way longer ago than that, <laughs> but but I wasn't ready to write it yet. It yeah. was it, it took going through and." You have to be ready to write a book because a book mm. is a huge commitment mm-hmm. and a huge time investment. And, imagine. Uh, so, because it, it took a little over a year from, by the time I decided, okay, I'm going to do this to finishing writing it was probably the better part of a year or a little bit more. But so that was probably, let's see, it came out in November, 2015. So that was 2013 or so sometime when I started writing the book and pulling together lessons and identifying examples and the main goal with that was just to help more people learn, right? And to point mm-hmm. out the things that I had learned because me standing in front of a group giving a workshop, you can only talk to so many people, but a book can be out there and mm-hmm. you know, find its way to all sorts of corners of the world, which has been super uh, amazing to watch. Um, and then Let's Practice came quite a bit later. And it was funny because when I got done with the first book, I thought, I will never have another word to write again, right? I'm out of words. I've used them all. <laughs> I know all. the feeling, yeah. <laughs> but then, but that goes away, right? Over time, you know, you'll be talking through something, you'll find a new way to explain something. You're like, oh, that's that's good, right? I, I should use that somewhere. Yeah. And so, by the time I started writing, let's practice, which I wanted to be much more of an experience, and one of my fears is that you know people would read the first book or go to a workshop and they get excited and they get it, but that it's very easy to just go back to doing things the way that you've always mm-hmm. been doing them. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to give folks a reason to practice and some low-risk ways to do so where you can try something out, right? The data is provided, the scenarios provided, there's no risk to you, but you can test out different things and learn from that process. And so that's really where Let's Practice came in. And when I initially started it, I thought it was going to have a um, I thought there'd be more writing in it, that I'd have a chapter and then some exercises. But I started writing and realized I had way too much to say for that. It was going to become this like thousand page book. And so Mm -hmm. scaled back and thought, well, I'll do the lessons that I want to cover through the exercises. Mm -hmm. And so Let's Practice is organized into three sections within each of the chapters. And the the chapters follow the same uh, general order as the first book. So it's Mm -hmm. like, read the first book or, you know, start with a chapter of interest and then turn to let's practice. And in let's practice, you'll find three different sets of exercises. There's practice with Cole, where I pose a scenario and some data that you're meant to solve on your own. But then I also... Uh, show you how I solve it and have the thought process behind it. And this is where the bulk of the content of the book Mm -hmm. comes in. You're really learning through example and by getting this window into someone else's thought process and constraints and considerations when it comes to these sort of off the wall examples. Because I felt like in looking back at the first book, everything was very simple. Everything was very cut and dry, which is a great place to start, but the real world is messier than Mm -hmm. that. And so with Let's Practice, had the opportunity to introduce more of that messiness uh, and uh, address ways of thinking about that. And then the second exercise section is practice on your own. So it's similar sort of canned examples, but without any predefined solution. So this is great for the individual who just wants more practice or university instructors or other instructors who are teaching the material where you can draw on for tests or assignments, or group projects, or for the manager who just wants their team to practice a little bit more. And then the final exercise section within each chapter is practice on your own. That's okay. You've, you've done this in theory, right? You've done it with some canned examples. Now take a project that you are facing in your day-to-day and Here's how you break it down. Here are the questions to ask. Here's where to get feedback and who to get feedback from. And all these really practical exercises that you can do with your own project in mind that will step you through different aspects of communicating uh, in ways that will get your message across, get it heard, get it understood by your audience.
0: Love it. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. We've got over two and a half thousand video tutorials, over 200 hours of content and 30 plus courses with new courses being added on average once per month. So all of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Love it. The books, uh, what I love about uh, the, the first one, storytelling of data is like, it's so easy to read. It's got a lot of pictures. It's got um, very, like you, you've mentioned it takes a year to write a book, but that one of the challenges is to to find a way to break it into such a uh, manuscript that is simple for people to understand. Yes. Um, and second one, great compliment in terms of uh, actually doing the practice. Um, now that we're on the topic of the book, uh, you probably get this question, uh, ask this question a lot. What are your... Let's let's dive into the contents, right? So let, let's uh, uh, talk about some, some best practices of visualization. Um, there's a lot in the book, you know, from pre-attentive attributes to short-term memory to uh, cognitive load and stuff like that. Uh, very interesting also from a psychological point of view, like what is the psychology of humans behind this? Um, if you had to take the top three tips from the book and... Uh, share it with somebody to already start using today? What would they be?
1: Yeah, so three things I would say when you are communicating with data. So first off is think about how you can simplify and declutter. When I say simplify, it's not about oversimplifying. Rather, it's not making things more complicated than they have to be. Uh, Because it's actually, it's quite easy to take something simple and make it appear very convoluted and complex uh, that... Does bad things when it comes to the efficacy of the communication. It's a much harder thing to take something that is truly complex and communicate that in a way that's easy to understand and and that's what we want to aim for and oftentimes we because we know our data so well, right? we've spent a ton of time with it. We know what we want to say with it. We know where we think people should focus. Uh, we know what's there that may not be relevant or necessary that you can kind of ignore. But the challenge is For anybody else, they're less close to that data. They maybe are looking at it for the first time. And so we have to take explicit steps to make those things clear to others. And so simplifying, decluttering, getting rid of anything that doesn't need to be there or that isn't impacting the message, right? You may have done a hugely technical statistical analysis but depending on your audience, not all of those details necessarily need to be in the communication, right? In most cases, your audience is trusting that you've done that robust stuff behind the scenes. And so then think about you know, whether and how much detail needs to be in the communication piece of that. So maybe my first tip would be to simplify. Second would be focus attention. So be clear about where you want your audience to look in what you're showing and take steps to focus their attention there often the easiest way to do so is through color. If you do things in grayscale or black and white and then use color sparingly and strategically just on the most important thing, uh, it directs attention there very quickly. But any sort of contrast will, will have this effect when it's used sparingly. So that'd be my second tip, focus attention where you want people to look. And the third tip would be your use of words. Use words. I think sometimes when we think about visualizing data, there's this misconception that it should all be numbers and pictures, but we need words to make those numbers and pictures accessible to people. So there's some words that have to be there. Right? Every graph should have a descriptive title. Every axis should have a title, even if you think it's totally obvious. Just the lack of these things can cause there to be some questions on the part of your audience or they may have to make an assumption. If you don't want them to use their brain power to make assumptions, just title explicitly, then they can use their brain power to focus on the data and the message. And then pairing these last two, right, focus and words, Show someone where you want them to look and then put words on the page or you know, in your voiceover if you're talking through something live that tell your audience why you want them to look there. I think another common misperception is that the data, we should allow the data to speak for itself. And data can. The challenge is just that it has the risk, it runs the risk of saying something different to every different person who's looking at it. And so if you have a message that you want people to get out of the data or something specific you want them to know, direct their attention there and put that into words so that it's clear. And those words actually do some really interesting things psychologically for the framing of when we look at data. Studies have shown that, for example, if you title a page or a section with the takeaway that you want people to see in the data, and then you show them the data, they're more likely not only to focus on that takeaway in the data, but to remember that takeaway after the data is no longer in front of them. So choosing titles and the words that you put around your data is a very powerful thing, and you want to do that carefully. Those would be my three tips. Uh, Simplify, focus attention, and use words wisely.
0: I love it. I think often people are people struggle with the challenge that they have so much interesting stuff to present in one chart and they're like, okay, I'll put this here and then this age group is doing this and this age group is doing that and these customers are doing that or whatever else and like you want to share all 10 insights that you got but you end up sharing zero. So I guess uh, following your advice, it's better to share two that people will remember than trying to share more, you know, less is more in this case.
1: Well, and this is where story can come in in really helpful ways. Because when you're analyzing the data, you're exploring the data, you need to look at all those 10 things, right, and more. It just doesn't mean that we need to communicate all of those things necessarily. and This will always be context and audience-dependent, but for any analysis, when we're exploring, we're trying to understand where there are interesting things that we can learn from that might impact how we do things or drive us to make smarter decisions. You need to look in a lot of different places right, to get a robust picture of that. But then, at the end of that, you want to step back from the data, step back from the analysis and think about, okay, now, given that, given what I've learned, What does my audience need to know? And they don't need every single bit of data you looked at, right? Again, they're assuming, for the most part, that you've done a robust analysis. That is your job. Uh, Your job is to tell them what do they need to do now? You know, what, what are the important things to know now that you've done this robust analysis? And It's not, I looked at these 50 things. It's, I looked at these 50 things. Don't even worry about that. We can get into that detail if you want to, but here are the two things up front, uh, right? simplifying, focusing, uh, using words to make the point clear that you need to focus on today or in the near term. And I think too often, people who are in analytical roles, who are doing a lot of analysis of data, they want to simply present the data, right? And assume that the audience will know what to do with it. They'll, they'll have context. They'll, they'll treat it appropriately. But the challenge is audiences are faced with just increasing amounts of data all of the time. And so when we simply serve up more data, it's really easy for an audience to say, oh, that's interesting. And then they turn their attention on to the next thing. Or worse, they ask you for even more data, right? Mm -hmm. It becomes this sort of death by data that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Whereas if you take it to the next step, you say, not only audience, here's the data, but here's something you should do with this data. Here's a discussion to have or a decision to make, options to consider, even if we don't have the full picture and we recommend something that might not be the right path it gets your audience thinking about action and focused on the right sort of conversation and that's a conversation that often gets skipped when we stop at simply showing data and so i'm a strong advocate for anyone who's analyzing data and using it to communicate have a put a stake in the ground right have an opinion on what now should happen next and make that clear to those to whom you're communicating um, because that is how we can derive more value from the work that you're already doing uh, because I am a huge believer that there is an incredible amount of value to be obtained from great work that's already being done that just isn't being communicated as effectively as it could be. So really thinking it through leaving time for this part of the process right because the the communication piece, for whatever reason, I don't know if it, it just it seems less technical maybe or less sexy. I don't know. It tends, we tend to overlook this piece, right? You spend all this time doing a fantastic uh, study or analysis and often it's time constraints too that like we get done, okay, we throw it in a graph, we maybe put some words around it and we're done. But mm-hmm. that graph is the only part of any of that work that anybody else actually sees. And that is the moment when things either succeed or fail. So the communication of your analyses is as important as every other step in the process. And so I think helping people recognize that and spend more time on that, right? Practicing, figuring out what works and what doesn't, and, you know, getting back to the sort of things that is covered in the books. Um, And actually, this is maybe a good segue into the storytelling with data community Uh, because I am a strong believer that to get really good in this space means practicing and getting feedback and talking with other people who may be encountering similar challenges or have come up with creative solutions. And this stems back to the fear that I mentioned earlier of somebody goes to a workshop or they read the book and they think, yeah, it's great, but then gets sucked back into the day-to-day of normalcy and nothing actually changes. And so giving people a low-risk spot to practice more and get feedback. And so the Storytelling with Data community is an online community that has been set up to facilitate all of these things. So it's free, takes a couple minutes to sign up, uh, but you can go there. This is at community.storytellingwithdata.com. And there you'll find um, ways to get feedback, right? You can post anonymized um, examples from your work to get feedback or things you might be trying out. You can have conversations with other people. And then we have ways, low-risk ways that people can practice. So for example, we do a monthly challenge that we've been doing for coming up on three years now. So every month there's a new challenge. And this ranges from you know, a specific graph type. So for example, you know, create a line graph and you're meant to go out, find some data of interest. We list a couple hundred public data sources in case you're looking for data and build like your best line graph. And so it gives people a reason to look for something interesting that they may want to visualize and practice. And then you submit it in the community and then other people can comment and give feedback, or you can ask for specific feedback. And so it ends up being great, both from the standpoint of giving the folks who undertake it uh, a, a reason to practice something specific. Uh, but then also at the end of it, it becomes this fantastic archive of, you know, at the end of that, we have now 88 annotated line graphs, for example, that now people can go back and look at for inspiration or to figure out what works better or, or worse. Um, and so the current one that we're running right now is designing a diagram, which is sort of a little bit out of the data viz space, but still in this visual sort of realm of take a process or a concept and make a diagram. And so you can see there are a couple dozen people already who've contributed this month. And then we have an exercise bank. And the exercises are very similar to what you'd find in Let's Practice, where everything is provided. The data is provided, the scenario is you were asked to flex a really specific skill, uh, you know, whether it be using color and words like we talked about earlier or some other best practices. And then there were a few that are more full-blown case study, you know, practice it all sort of exercises. And so we've got, um, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 exercises there now. We're adding to that exercise bank all the time so you can filter to be able to practice specific skills. And then we just uh, about two months ago introduced premium in the community, which so everybody, everything I've talked about so far is free. Uh, but then there's another, another level uh, that is a subscription model where folks who sign up for premium get access to, we do monthly live events where I or the team uh, talks through a lesson, maybe does a makeover, and people can join live and contribute questions and uh, ask. Um, and get some insight from the team that way. We do regular office hours, and then we have a library of on-demand video learning as well.
0: Wow, sounds like you've built a, a very uh, big ecosystem around data visualization, and it's it's inspiring because, as you said, just before your book, the only places to go to were the you know Tuft's principle, maybe um, some some more kind of like like Cleveland and McGill ranking of elementary perceptual tasks, like from the nineties or eighties. Uh, It's great to see that there is a community building around, coming around here and and, um, awesome that people can share. And uh, we actually also have a community and they've already submitted some questions for you, which I'd love to go over a bit later on this podcast. Um, But before we jump into that, one more uh, very important topic that uh, I don't think I've covered off in depth with uh, any guest on the podcast previously. And I think you're the perfect guest to cover it off with is storytelling. Can you please tell us, like, what is a good story? What goes into a good story? How does one structure a good story?
1: Yeah, great question. And there are are multiple ways to structure story, right? There's not one right way. But when I'm thinking about story and when we're teaching about story, we usually do so through the narrative arc. Where if you picture an arc, you start off with the plot, what's happening at the beginning of the story. Uh, Then some sort of tension gets introduced. That tension builds uh, in the form of a rising action. It reaches a point of climax, then there's a falling action, and finally a resolution. And so we teach this and we we show it in this arc sort of shape that does a couple of things. Um, Because I think oftentimes when you know when we're in a technical role, when we're analyzing data. Often the way we communicate that ends up mirroring the process we went through. So it's a more linear path where we might start off with, you know, what's the question that we set out to answer in the first place? What was our hypothesis at the onset? Then there's the data, right? Where did we get it? What assumptions did we make? Did we do things to clean it? Then there's the actual analysis we went through, right? What was the statistical methodologies that we employed? And then our findings. And so it's this very linear path. And the challenge with the typical linear path is that it's very selfish, In terms of, you know, it comes most naturally because that's the path I went through when I was analyzing the data. But we can do the linear path without ever pausing and really considering our audience. And for me, that's the biggest shift that happens when we think about not communicating in a linear way, but rethinking our analytical communications along the path of a story. Because to have a story, you have to have tension. And it's not about making up tension, right? If if there weren't any tension, you'd have nothing to communicate about in the first place. It's about figuring out what that tension is, uh, how do you bring attention to it, and it's not the tension that matters to you typically. It's the tension that matters to your audience, which means we have to do this sort of mind bending, and instead of communicating for ourselves, our own needs, for our data, for our analysis, communicate first and foremost for our audience. Then when we think about story structure, uh, the resolution at the end becomes what your audience can do to resolve the tension that you've brought to light. And what happens is when you communicate this way, thinking about your audience, structuring things for them, drawing their attention to the tension that's going to matter to them, you know, that also matters to you, but making those things work in coordination with each other, you can get people to pay attention in new ways. You can motivate them to act in totally different ways that is really powerful. So I think it's interesting. Um, I sometimes get the reaction and, and more often from technical folks and a story that's like fluffy marketing stuff. but you can actually be very strategic in the way that you use story to communicate. So the narrative arc is is one way of thinking about that. And what we'll often do in practice with a group is everybody has little sticky notes, right? Little post-its. And at the onset, we'll have them get a project in mind and just start storyboarding, just start writing down, uh, pieces of content that maybe will fit into the eventual picture. And at first just brainstorm, don't worry about order. Don't worry about what makes it into the final deck or report, just brainstorm. And then you start organizing those post-it notes and figuring out how do you group them together, right? What order might you want to go through them in? And often at the end of that process, we end up with that sort of linear path that I described before. And then, then we think about story. Okay, now that we've got these pieces, how might we look at this through a different lens and take our audience along an intentional path that will work for them? And there are a ton of ways that you could do that, right? And that's where you can try out different things or take what you know about an audience. You know, in some cases, it might make sense to start with the finding. Hey, we did this analysis and we found X. In other cases, you're gonna need to build up to that. Because if you start there, and particularly if that runs counter to people's expectations at the onset, uh, it may go down a bad path. And so maybe there are some cases where you build up to that or where you take people through different paths to get there. Um, But so the main thing is being intentional about how you communicate. Because I think too often we fall into this trap where we do it the same way we've always done it because we've always done it that way. Whereas when we're thinking about who our audience is, how we're delivering the information to them, uh, what biases they have, what constraints we're facing. And we do things to try to make all of those inputs work together that we can align ourselves to have more success when it comes to how we communicate. Story's a piece of that, I think, the the, the overall puzzle.
0: I love it. I love it. How many steps do you recommend for a story? Is it 5, 12, 20? What's, What's the optimal number?
1: know that there's an optimal number. I, d- I don't think there is an optimal number. There's probably some sort of minimum that you wouldn't go below. Though I'd even question that. I think it's, it's going to depend, right? It's going to depend on what level of detail your audience needs. And this is another thing, right? For the same analysis for different audiences, you may take them through different stories. So if I'm communicating to the C-suite, it may be a three-step story, right? Or maybe they actually just care about the so what and they don't need any of the other stuff. Versus if I'm communicating to uh, just making things up, like my finance partner and they want all of the detail, they want to know, you know, cost associated with different things or I'm just making things up, but where the level of detail may vary quite a lot depending on who the audience is. And this is another thing to be thoughtful about is do we need to communicate to everybody all at once or should we communicate to different audiences separately? Right? And there are mm-hmm. pros and cons to both of those things. But I'm always an advocate of, if it's something really important and your audience's needs are sufficiently different then trying to communicate to them differently so that you can match your given audience's needs
0: each time. Gotcha. And how do you see the difference between communicating a presentation in person where you can actually present in front of a projector Or versus or virtually versus uh, sending somebody just the PowerPoint slides and they have to go through it. Like, do you have different approaches to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. When when you're there in person, whether it's in a room with somebody or, you know, uh, in our two dimensional environment of today in the virtual world, you you're you're materials can be relatively sparse because you're there to talk to them and you can speed up or slow down and pause and answer questions or go into more detail or less detail depending on what people need Uh, and actually one strategy that works very well in person but especially in the virtual environment and particularly if you're going to if you need to show something complicated is build it piece by piece right so if I, if I want to lead up to a graph that's going to look kind of gnarly at the end of it but I, I need to do that for some reason I don't need to start with the gnarly looking graph. I can start with just the axes right put up the, the framework the scaffolding then I can show just uh, the titles and labels on those axes which forces people to sit with me through the explanation of what they're going to be looking at before they jump to the data because I haven't even shown them the data yet. And then you layer on the data, sometimes piece by piece, or if there's a chronological component, you can walk them through how something builds over time. And so you build up to something that at the end might look complicated, but because you've broken it into these piecewise steps, it doesn't feel complicated anymore. And this can work great in the virtual environment because it keeps people's attention on your slides or on your screen because of that motion, right? And it builds this bit of anticipation of, you know, people will be less likely to multitask over in their email because they might miss what happens next. And it builds in uh, some attention that can be useful in the virtual environment, especially. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so slides, uh, communications can be sparse when you're talking through them because you can lend a lot of that detail through your voiceover. And you don't Mm -hmm. want the visual competing with attention for what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Versus when you send something around, the level of detail that needs to be physically written in that document is much higher. And our tolerance for detail is higher in that setting, right? When I'm reviewing something just myself uh, on my own computer, uh, I can read, I will read through things more than I might be apt to you know, if someone flashes a slide in front of me in a live presentation. So These two scenarios for how you're delivering data, the biggest thing that changes is the level of detail, much more in that thing that you're sending around, because you're not there to lend the voiceover and answer questions and lend context, which means all of that has to be done on the page itself.
0: Hmm. Gotcha. And you teach all these things in in the workshops that you hold, and uh, you have a workshop coming up on the 15th of September, a public workshop. Uh, Tell us a bit about that.
1: Yeah. So uh, these have gone virtual as well. And we do these periodically, usually a few a year in uh, different cities around the world, uh, but we've gone virtual in 2020. And so our next one will be September 15th. All that information's on the site at storytellingwithdata.com public-workshops and it 's similar to what I was describing before with some of the interactivity that we 've been using, where this is a five hour session draws people from all around the world, all different sorts of organizations and industries and so far part of the fun is just the variety of attendees and you 'll have ways to interact uh, with other attendees but it 's a mix of teaching some foundational principles for communicating with data, and then a lot of hands on practice where there 's exercises. Uh, it's almost similar to the pairing of the first book and the second book. It's a little bit of teaching, a lot of hands-on practice, and then integrating interactivity. So both interactivity with Uh, the folks facilitating, which is me and the team, and then also interactivity with the other participants. And uh, it's super fun, right? Five hours sounds at the onset, like a long time to sit in front of your computer, but the time flies by. And actually the biggest piece of feedback we got from the last time we did this in May was that people wanted more, right? They wished it was longer. like, I don't know, five hours is already pretty long to sit in front of a computer. But we mix things up in ways to keep it really engaging and interactive. So I'd say for anyone who wants guidance in honing the kinds of skills that we've talked about today. It's an excellent place to do so.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. sounds, sounds very exciting. And, um, is it when you, do you have preferable preferred tools? Like for instance, in this workshop, do we have to use Tableau or click or is it like, can I use any tool?
1: Great question. So we keep the workshops low tech uh, that We recommend tools like post-it notes, like I mentioned before, pen, paper, where you're sketching ideas. And there's a couple benefits to that. One, it's faster, right? So we can iterate and uh, have things to show other people in, in a low-tech way without getting bogged down by tools and the time that that takes. But also, it frees us up from the constraints of our tools or what we know how to do in our tools and can get, just get the creative juices flowing in ways that's useful as we're thinking about how we show our data in new ways. And then when it comes to the tools that we use primarily, uh, if you look to the books or um, the examples on the site are primarily Excel, primarily Excel and PowerPoint. Uh, We do some Tableau, but we end up going back to Excel primarily just because it's so universal, right? Everybody Mm -hmm. has it. Everybody can make it graphs in it. The learning curve is relatively low. And I love the fact that anyone can pick it up and make a graph. Yeah. Uh, challenge is just that and in most cases, nobody's really taught us how to do this and it's easy to do some bad things. Yeah. Um, but for me, the tool, the lessons we teach are tool agnostic. They can be done in any tool, right? And you'll face different constraints, uh, in, in any tool. Um, but that's part of the fun, right? Is awesome. figuring out what are the constraints I face this time and, and how do I still make it work? And that's where getting a piece of paper and getting it right on paper first, and then looking to your tools to try to make it real can be a good way to go.
0: And I love that in your, um, on your website uh, and you share some links in your book as well, you share these uh, templates for Excel where somebody can just like take, download a template and, and build a complex chart which is cool.
1: Yeah. And actually I should men- mention, so all of the data, all of the graphs for Let's Practice are available. The first book too, but on the for the second book, we've really been concentrating on getting solutions built in different tools. So yep. all the Excel solutions are available. And then there are some exercises that we've built solutions in you know, tools ranging from Google Data Studio to R, Python, uh, Tableau, Power BI. And um, there's actually, there was a community member, Adam Roboto, I might be saying his last name wrong, who just posted. He actually went through the first book and recreated all of the graphs in R mm. and made his library of code available in GitHub. Amazing. And so if you go to the site, um, the straighttongueddata.com slash book slash downloads or slash Let's Practice Downloads, You'll find uh, all of the everything that we know about, right? That's been done in these other tools because it's a fantastic way to learn, right? As you take something that you can see and now try to recreate it in your tools or get as close to that as you can.
0: Love it! All right, Cole, are you ready for uh, rapid fire questions from our community?
1: Oh, sure, let's do it.
0: Okay, here we go. So I posted on LinkedIn. Lots of people have replied, um, and here we're going to start with a question from Julian, who's asking. What are Cole's tips for determining the right level of simplicity and amount of information over the visualizations for the target audience?
1: This is a hard question, Julie, and hard to hard to answer specifically. Right Uh, when we talked about simplifying and focusing attention earlier, and so really think about your audience because one of the things that we have found in practice is if you only simplify, right, if you focus on decluttering but do nothing else, it can leave your audience feeling like you've taken things away without adding back the requisite value. And so if you're taking the time to declutter, also make sure you're taking the time to focus attention and highlight the takeaway because then that more than what makes up for the things that have been taken away. But when it comes to the right amount of detail, right, for a given audience... Use what you know about them, uh, about how they like to be communicated to, right? What level of detail they're going to desire. And if you don't know them directly, do you you know colleagues who've communicated with them? Or do you know people like them? And sometimes you have to make assumptions and try to go in and and learn from each scenario. Okay, that was too much. We got down this path. I didn't mean to. So next time, let's scale it back eh, that was not enough. We didn't get into the meaty discussions. And so it's a little bit of trial and error. But then, of course, learning from each experience and learning from your colleagues around you who may have insight.
0: Gotcha. Awesome. Um, next question is from Bruno. What are best practices to consider when designing a mobile dashboard?
1: Ah, uh, So I don't spend a lot of time in mobile, but we actually did one of our challenges. It was a guest one that Andy Cotgrieve uh, did for us. He's one of the authors of the big book of Dashboard. Uh, dashboards. This was last summer, so it's probably last July or August, maybe last August. Uh, but the, the challenge was designing for mobile. And so if you go to the challenge archives in the community, you can see uh, a lot of different approaches that people took. And he mentions mentions a ton of resources, I think, in his write-up as well. So that would be a, a place to check out you want to think about how people are going to be interacting, right? They're, they're on a much smaller object than a computer. And so the way you scale things is differently, how you arrange things, right? Uh, there are considerations of are people swiping or are they scrolling? And uh, this is not an answer to the question, but some of the things to be thinking about.
0: Fantastic. And we'll, we'll, we'll link to that uh, resource in the show notes if anybody wants to check it out. Uh, Maximilian asks, what are the three most often used visualization types in your daily work?
1: So we spend most of our space in business communications, right? Where it's uh, something's being communicated in an organizational setting. And so the charts that we see most commonly are are going to be the familiar ones. They're line graphs and bar charts and... What would the third be? Maybe a pie? I don't know. i can <laughs> finish a little bit on that. but uh, And there's good reason for that, right? Because people already know how to read these graphs. And so you face less of a learning curve for getting your information across. So you always want to think about if you're choosing something less familiar or more novel, one, be thoughtful about why you're doing that. And secondly, recognize that you're going to need, you're introducing a hurdle. You're going to need to get your audience over that hurdle and understanding how to interpret the visual before you can even start talking about the data. And so it means oftentimes when we're analyzing data, we may be using very different visuals compared to when we now need to communicate that data to someone else. And when it comes to the communication piece, and again, this is audience context dependent, but oftentimes it is the simple straightforward graphs that are going to do that most effectively. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. So sometimes you wanna get creative and like do something amazing, but oftentimes, you know, stick with the simple stuff to get your point across.
1: Yeah, you don't want it to be at the expense of your message being heard yeah,
0: or understood. Yeah, I guess there's like two t- styles of visualization: then one for for work, and one if you want to go publish your dashboard, impress others, or just like have fun. You can share that in, in for instance, your community, right? Like and and explore new skills, but you should separate the two. There's there's work and there's play.
1: Well, and there, there's, there are different reasons for visualizing data, right? Yeah. We might, in some cases, we visualize it to understand it better. In some yeah. cases, we visualize it to communicate someone to someone else. In other cases, we, yeah, we might just be having fun or wanting to create something beautiful. Uh, yeah. But to your point, you just want to be thoughtful about when you're optimizing for
0: which of those things. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, another question from Maximilian. What defines an excellent one-slide data visualization from your point of view?
1: From my point of view, it would draw on a lot of the things that we've talked about already. So for me, an excellent data visualization, when it's put in front of me, I know where to look. Uh, Everything is titled and labeled in a way that if I have questions about what I'm looking at, I can find the answers to those questions. Uh, I'm not finding myself having to make assumptions or not really sure what I'm looking at. Uh, And for me, the aesthetically pleasing bit of it is important as well of I want it to be something that... I want to look at, right? Where someone was thoughtful in how it's designed aesthetically, that there, it's free of cl- unnecessary clutter or things that don't need to call attention or push to the background, right? That there was thoughtfulness in the design, I guess is how I'd characterize that piece.
0: Okay. Okay. That's, uh, I think that's a very valid point. And we did speak all about, a lot about these things already. Um, Be- Bernardus uh, asks, what are the best practices to teach non-data people for quickly grasping the concept of data visualization, uh, especially for explanation? Something I guess that's dear to your heart because you teach a lot of people. So, what have, what are your best practices for teaching people?
1: This is this is a great question, and this is a hard question to answer in a rapid-fire sort of situation, right? Because for me, the and there's whole topic there are you know, books written about data literacy and how do we how do we improve people's data literacy but i'd actually take it i think a step back from that to say don't focus on the graph right the purpose is not to teach someone how to understand the data visualization in most cases the purpose is to get them to understand what you need them to know and you can use graphs to help do that and i think when when you Employ some of the strategies that we've talked about in terms of, you know, don't overcomplicate. Use a straight sort forward sort of visual that people are going to that'll be familiar that they've seen before. So you're not overwhelming someone who says ah eh, you know i'm just i'm not good at graphs i'm not going to get this where it's it's something straightforward so you're not scaring people but then it's it's really it's the story it's the narrative that you build around it because when that's done well right when i have a compelling narrative i've made it clear to my audience where they're meant to look and what i'm showing whether that's the words or the data or a combination of those things uh, i've thoughtfully gotten rid of extraneous things that don't need to be there then your audience is focused on the so what, almost to the extent that they may not even realize they're looking at a graph. Mm. So, and and there will be cases where, no, it's actually, it's this really nuanced visual we need to use because it allows us to have this insight that otherwise we can't see. And so there will be cases where you need to teach your audience how to look at something or what to see or how to do that. And in those cases, when you can sit side by side so that you can, or maybe not side by side today, but sit one-on-one with that person and talk them through piece by piece, right? You can build in the way that we talked about a little bit earlier, if that makes sense, but have them ask questions and get an understanding. Because I think it's too easy for people when we put a graph in front of somebody else and they don't get it to say, oh, that's their fault. But that's a failure on the part of the design, right? If we put a graph in front of someone else and they don't get it, that is our fault as the designers of that graph. It means we did something that made it unclear or made it impenetrable in some way. And so learning from that of what could we do or when you can ask the question, right? What, what's confusing here or what caused you to focus on, you know, this one weird thing that I didn't think you or anyone was going to look at uh, and iterate from that. And a great way to do that before putting it in front of your audience is just Iterate with people around you, right? colleagues, friends, and particularly people who are much less close to your work than you are. Put something in front of someone and have them talk you through what they see, where they pay attention, uh, what takeaways they might uh, highlight from it, and learn from this process. Because as we get close to our data, it becomes really hard to have fresh eyes when we're looking at things. So using other people and getting their fresh lenses and If something's not sitting right with the audience, don't assume the problem sits with them. Assume the problem sits with you and the design and work to better understand what's causing any resistance and how you might get at that more
0: directly. Amazing. I I think people should embrace and celebrate those moments when somebody says, I don't get it, because that means you're about to step outside your comfort zone and learn something new, how to explain better the The easier way out is to blame the person, but as you said, take responsibility, take ownership, and you will grow and learn as a designer in the process.
1: Yeah, and I love that. It's fantastic when someone says, "I, I don't get it," because then you can have a conversation about, "Well, what's what's challenging, right? Tell me about, tell me more about that." Because I think more often people don't admit it, and they, you just you've lost the opportunity to communicate. Because now somebody doesn't get it, but they don't voice that, and you don't yeah. know, so you don't ever get to have that conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Okay, uh, next question from Kyle. Really excited for this episode. I was just curious how the role of psychology and visual perception plays in Cole's design process and what are some important principles that she keep? She always tries to keep in mind?
1: Good questions. Uh, so I think, you know, when we think of psychology, I, I go mostly to how people's brains work and you know, where they're going to look and what sort of things will draw attention so the things that I like to keep in mind when I'm designing my own graphs, contrast is a really big one. Right? I talked about that a little bit earlier with color, but really employing contrast thoughtfully. And you can do that in a lot of different ways. You can do that by sizing things differently or you know, sparing use of color, like we talked about. Um, but this draws on the pre-attentive attributes, right? Both books go into those in more detail, but things like color, orientation, shape, and such, that when, you, when everything's the same and you vary one or a couple of these in ways that are really contrasting, that draws people's attention, And so I'm always thinking about where do I want people to look? Or how do I want them to interact with the information, right? What's the visual hierarchy? Where should they look first? Where should they look next? And how do you orient things on the page and use contrast to make that clear? Where sometimes there are less important things or like, you know, it's like the third or fourth order of importance, but things that still need to be there where you can push them to the background and make them gray, use smaller text, do things to de-emphasize so that you create this really clear visual hierarchy. And so I'm always thinking about that. And I'm also always thinking about, and this came up before, uh, but how I'm using my words Um, using accessible language, making sure things are titled and labeled because the things that are clear to me about my data, because I know my data, aren't necessarily going to be clear to somebody else looking at my data. So really taking intentional steps to make it easy for my audience to know where to look and what to see. Mm -hmm. And then getting feedback and especially getting feedback if you're trying new things or doing something in a different way. uh, Because we sort of And when we try something new, we can fall in love with the process, right? Where it looks great to us because it's this new shiny sort of thing, whether it's, you know, I've stripped out color and I'm using color only in a certain way now, or I'm trying out a graph type that uh, is maybe less common that you, you can uh, get really attached to that. And particularly if it's taken you a long time to generate it, right? That we form this attachment. So getting feedback uh, and letting go of things, even if you've invested time and thought of if it's not working, letting yourself iterate and let go of things. And that's one of the reasons that starting with paper can be so important because you can quickly sketch something crazy on paper and realize, oh, I thought that would work, <laughs> but it actually doesn't. And mm-hmm. just recycle the paper. But if I've just spent you know hours of my day or days of my week creating this thing, it's much harder to let go of. And Mm -hmm. so being thoughtful about how we iterate um, and looking at data a ton of different ways can be really insightful, both in terms of figuring out how might we communicate it in a way that's going to work for someone else, but also just to help us get to know our data better. Uh, There are different nuances we can see when we cycle through, right? We try it in bars, we try it as lines, we throw it into a scatter plot. We do these different things because it will allow us to get to know our data better so that then we can talk about it more fluently and can land on these ways to show it that'll help our audience
0: understand it more quickly. Wow! Thank you. Amazing answer. You covered so many, so many great points. Um, exhaustive answer as well. It's nothing, nothing to. <laughs> well, you add. said I,
1: lightning round, and I didn't <laughs> warn you that I can talk for a long time on these topics. <laughs> no,
0: love it, love it. Um, one question left. Um, this one might be trickier. I guess uh, save the best for last. Unintentionally just happened, but uh, let's see, let's see how we go. Um, so Monica asks: uh, Has there been a time when you or we're creating a visual for an audience you do not know well, i.e., for example, a new job or a contest. Since knowing the audience is a big part of creating a useful visual, what are some tips?
1: Yeah, great question. And so, you know, you, for audiences that you don't know or you can't talk to directly, then you want to think about, well, what, what assumptions can I make about them, right? What do I know about them? Uh, what do I know about what they might care about or what could I assume about what they might care about? And so you can oftentimes make assumptions, right? Would be one place to start, uh, but test those assumptions and think about well, what if I'm wrong here? And this is where getting colleagues involved and uh, brainstorming can be useful. But it's not necessarily that you have to know your specific audience, right? Because you may know other people who are similar to that audience or who will have biases that are like that audience, or uh, you may have colleagues who have communicated successfully or unsuccessfully with a similar audience before, and so trying to learn from that process. and. I don't remember which one offhand, but I know there is an exercise in let's practice. It would be in chapter one, which is about context and thinking about our audience and our message uh, that is some thought starters for getting to know your audience. And there are some specifics for when it's an unknown audience of things that you can do there. But I think any time you're spending thinking critically about who your audience is and what they care about Even if you're making some assumptions and even if some of those assumptions are wrong, that is still going to be time well spent because now you've gotten out of your own head and started thinking about things from someone else's point of view. And that is always going to be helpful when we communicate, even if we get the details a little bit wrong. And then learn from each time, right, of what worked well, what didn't work well. Do thoughtful post-mortems so that you can iterate and continue to hone how you're doing things over.
0: And that'll probably also help create a kind of like these archetypes of audiences. And yeah. then next time it'll help you. You'll be like, oh, I have five archetypes in my mind or even written down somewhere. Which archetype does this audience fall under? And then you already know what to do. And if it doesn't fall under any archetype, create a new one, a sixth one, a seventh one, and so on.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Great. Awesome. Uh, Cole, uh, just one more question, I guess, from me uh, to finish, to wrap things up Um I love to ask this question. It's more of a of a philosophical type of question from From what you've seen in the space of data visualization in in the world and how it's been changing and you've been in the space for for a, a you know through many different um the good and the bad times, and <laughs> you've been at Google and running your own business and helping lots of organizations, where do you think this whole space of data visualization, uh, is going what what would it look like in three to five years? What should our listeners prepare for if they want to build a career in this space?
1: Yeah, great question. And I think that this, this one of the things that has happened over the years is that data, you know, jobs focused on data used to be a sort of niche thing, uh, and that's no longer the case, right? We we have data all around us. We're capturing it everywhere, and so increasingly doing things with data has become parts of people's roles that never historically had to deal with data, right? I think of just the Google example, human resources, not a data-driven organization historically. Uh, And so now you have people in like HR generalist sort of jobs who are having to look at data and having to interpret that and do things with it. And that's happening at scale everywhere, right? Where roles that historically didn't need to know how to do things with data are increasingly needing to do so. And mm-hmm. so the skill that comes with that, that is in desperate need, is how do you communicate that data effectively? So I, you know, for your audience here, would be a huge advocate of any time you spend investing in yourself. And how you can communicate your data, both how you show it, right? Some of the visual components that we've talked about today, but then also you and how you talk through your data, how you present it becomes such an important piece because, and those people who are good at that or get good at that are going to be in high demand because I think it's interesting, there's been in the last few years what feels like a big emphasis on data science, right? It's this mm-hmm. like sexy new role, like, yeah, everybody wants to be a data scientist. Like that sounds really cool. Used to, it is existed for a long time. It, they just used to have names like statistician, right? Which <laughs> does not sound as cool. Um, but there's been uh, more awareness around and investment in skills related to data science, right? Which is hugely important. Um, but has been a little bit at the expense, I think, and I think where we'll shift next is now this other piece of hey, you can analyze the data, right? You can pull insights from it, but how do you verbalize those to somebody else in a way that they can understand and take action on it? So any investing you do in your skills when it comes to how you're communicating your data will serve you very well, I think, in the coming years because I think that's that's what we need, right? So that we don't get overwhelmed by data, but we have people who can thoughtfully turn that data into information and that you know, the world can do greater things as a result of that.
0: Absolutely. And uh, to add to that, you at the beginning of the podcast you mentioned that uh, data present, presenting data is, at, is as important as uh, building the models. I would say it's more important and the reason for that is like for instance, as a business owner, would I rather somebody build me a cool super high-tech deep learning XG boost model and not be able to explain it to me? And the insights, or would I be satisfied with a logistic regression simpler model, but that is presented in a way that I know exactly what to do? Oh, uh, seven days out of the week, I will go for the second option data presentation, mo- like in my view, number one skill for all kinds of data scientists. I concur. <laughs> awesome. Cole, thank you so much for coming. Uh, it's been a huge pleasure. Before I let you go, uh, where can our audience find you, follow you? get in touch, get to know about your books uh, and all these amazing things that you're doing.
1: Yeah, so you can find everything that we've talked about today on our website, which is storytellingwithdata.com. I'm also active on Twitter. I'm uh, at Story With Data. Uh, we have a LinkedIn page for Storytelling With Data where we post tips and articles and resources on a daily basis. Uh, but start with the website, storytellingwithdata.com, and you'll find everything else from
0: there. Fantastic, fantastic, love it. Um, and uh, yeah, and of course people, I... Um, I encourage people to follow you on LinkedIn. I think you have uh, 10,000 followers there who are benefiting from all the share- things you're sharing. And I love the idea of your community. So um, people should join that. And I wanted to say, yeah, I totally love your book. If anybody is re- reading this book right now, we even have people who posted in the questions like, I'm reading the book now, I'm finishing it up. The previous guest on the podcast was just talking about your book. If you've read the book, leave a review. I think it's available. On, it is available on Amazon. Leave a review on Amazon. It's totally worth it. So more people can learn about it.
1: Thank you. That's fantastic.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Cole. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today.
1: Thanks for having me, Carl.
0: So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for sharing this hour with us. And uh, what was your favorite takeaway? My personal favorite takeaway was the idea that Cole shared about building up complex visualization. So, of course, we have to simplify and make it easier. But if it has to be complex, do it step by step. Uh, Do the axes first and add some some elements then some other elements, maybe some motion so that people see how the visualization is being built up. And, of course, there is so much value on this podcast. I hope you were able to Get as much as you can, and you will be able to implement these things in your career because data visualization is one of the most important steps in a data science project. As always, you can get all of the show notes for this episode at superdatascience.com/395. That's superdatascience.com/395. There you'll find the link to Cole's website, the community, her LinkedIn profile, her Twitter, and everything else including the workshop that is coming up on the 15th of September Now about the workshop first thing is that Cole uh, created a coupon for our audience so if you want to attend the uh, workshop make sure to put in the coupon super data science all one word and um, at checkout and you'll get 10% off on this workshop sounds like an amazing workshop I'm personally right now considering of attending. And I want to see if uh, I can fit it into my schedule. But if I can, I would love to sit through this five-hour workshop. So if you are going, uh, the coupon code for podcast listeners is Super Data Science to get your ten percent off. Also, Super Data Science will be sponsoring one of our listeners to go to this workshop completely on us. If uh, and that could be you. And the way to participate is leave a review for this podcast. Just go to Apple iTunes. Or wherever you're listening to this podcast, leave a review, take a screenshot and send it to podcast at science.com, and we'll pick a random winner from everybody who sends a review. It doesn't have to be a five star review if you think it's a terrible podcast, leave a terrible <laughs> review, but take a screenshot, send it to podcast at science.com, and we will pick a random person, absolutely random from everybody who sends them in and you will get a free seat at this amazing workshop. So in any case, if you want to attend, go and get your seat now and then submit your review and maybe you'll get another seat and then you can share it with a friend or colleague or family member. Share the love, spread the love. So we go, very simple. Uh, All the show notes are at superdatascience.com slash 395 and make sure to leave a review, send it to podcast at superdatascience.com. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I look forward to seeing you back here next time. And until then, happy analyzing.